right, well, as we begin this morning, I'm going to show you a picture on the screen, and I want to see if you recognize uh, who this is. Don't say it right away or anything. Just kind of smile knowingly to the person next to you so they'll know that you know who it is, and then we'll get to, to, uh, to the big reveal in a moment. But the picture on the screen, anybody know who that is? Those of you joining us online, do you know? You can type it in the comments. That'd be just fine, or give it a thumbs up, or a laughter emoji, whatever it is. Okay, everybody got it? Anybody want to say it out loud? Pigpen. I heard it. I heard it. It's always a big risk when you say, you know, you never know what you're going to hear uh, coming back from the crowd. But yes, this is Pigpen. He was introduced to the comic strip Peanuts in 1953. And from that point forward, pretty much every time you see Pigpen, he's surrounded by this just clamorous cloud of dust, right? And uh, in fact, even when it's raining, there's dust around Pigpen. Like, it doesn't make sense. You would think that the rain would at least wash him off. Um, he's often derided or made fun of by some of the other characters uh, for this sort of chronic messiness, but it never really seems to bother him. He never seems to get offended or to get down about it. Um, in fact, there's one um, comic strip where he dressed up for a party and he showed up without the cloud of dust and they wouldn't let him into the party because nobody recognized who he was. <laughs> now you might be saying, well, what does this have to do with anything, right? Especially the pace of grace. Well, in his book, God is Closer Than You Think, John Ortberg tells of a sort of Jewish tradition or a Jewish blessing. Some have speculated that maybe this is anecdotal. I don't think it really matters because the content is so good uh, of this idea that they would greet each other and they would say, may the dust of your rabbi be upon you. And the idea behind this blessing was that if you were following a rabbi, that you would be so close to that rabbi that you would let their dust settle over you as you walked, as you went, as you sat at their feet and listened to their teaching. The idea that their dust would settle over you was intended to be a blessing. And we know from the Gospels that Jesus was referred to as rabbi by many of his followers. That was how they addressed him. They saw him as their rabbi, their teacher. And the idea that they would be so close to Jesus, that they would be covered in his dust, that they would take his invitation that we looked at in week two of this series to walk with him, to work with him, to be yoked to him, to watch how he does it, to go when he goes, to stop when he stops, to move at his pace, to sit at his feet, to listen to him, to do what he does. These are all elements of this blessing to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Contrast this by running out ahead of him or taking little detours. I know you're going there, Jesus, but I need to go over here and I need to do this thing. I'll catch up later, I promise. Or maybe sort of squatting at his feet, saying, give me something good, Jesus. I got to go do this thing. Inspire me. Teach me something. I got this problem. Can you fix it? And then we're off instead of sitting at his feet. Now I won't get down and sit because I've reached an age where it takes me a while to get back up and it doesn't always look pretty and I don't want to do that on camera in front of several hundred people. But this all fits into our series which we conclude today titled The Pace of Grace. We've been talking about walking with Jesus in a world addicted to hurry, a world addicted to getting out ahead of him, 
or departing from him or just checking in briefly. Are we still good, Jesus? I got to go do this. And learning to walk with him at the pace of grace. And so while today is the last day of this sermon series, I dearly, dearly hope that this is not the last time that you think about moving at the pace of grace. I hope that there have been some new habits established in your life, some new things that you think about and not just think about, but do differently because of the time that we've spent together looking at this. I hope that some of the suggestions that we have made or that we'll make today have taken root and have created some space in your life to draw closer to Jesus. That's the real goal in all of this. And we're not going to stop moving at the pace of grace. We're going to stick with Jesus in our next series as well. For those of you that keep an eye on the liturgical calendar, the the calendar of the Christian year, this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. And that means we'll start into Lent. And our next seven weeks, we'll be moving through the Gospel of John, talking about what it means to not just believe in Jesus, but to really believe him, to really take him at his word and seek to incorporate his teachings into every area of our lives. And so today we're finishing up The Pace of Grace. It's a progressive series. If you're joining us for the first time, man, we are so glad that you're here, that you've chosen to worship with us, whether it's in the room here or it's online. If you missed a week or two, please catch up. Go to our podcast, go to our YouTube page or our Facebook page, go to our Church Center app and watch the messages that you missed. If you're at YouTube, go ahead and subscribe. And we would love for you to do that. If you like it, give it a thumbs up. Go to Uh, to uh, Facebook and follow us um, and interact with our content going forward if it's a blessing to you. Just to kind of catch you up, the first couple of weeks we looked at the problem and the solution. We talked about a level of engagement that people would commit to. And I haven't said anything about that for the last couple of weeks. How are you guys doing on your level of engagement? How many of you picked one and have you stayed with it? Because it's not too late to pick it back up or to live out that commitment that you made. The last couple of weeks, we've been focusing on key spiritual disciplines. We started three weeks ago with the discipline of silence and solitude, regularly making space for God to speak to us through silence and solitude. We talked about the idea that without solitude, it's virtually impossible to live a spiritual life, that if we're led by the Spirit, we need to keep in step with the Spirit, and that sometimes involves silence and solitude. Then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Sabbath keeping, that Sabbath can be a place for this longer experience of silence and solitude. Sabbath is an opportunity to pause from the frenetic pace of life and devote a day, or if that's too much to start, an afternoon, a morning, a chunk of time that you can grow into for rest, for worship, for this sort of subtle resistance to the pace that the world moves. We looked at Jesus' words that man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. It's a gift. It's a birthday present that God wants you to open every single week, to be excited about it and to plan ahead for it. Then last week, we looked at the topic of simplicity and asking that question, what would Jesus do if he were me? If he had my relationships, if he had my commitments, what would he do? And how can we then simplify our lives? I received more feedback on that message than some of the other ones, especially the comments on trucks. I'm so sorry, truck owners. That's sometimes called conviction. And so I'm just going to tell you, if, that, if you got really mad about it, there could be some other message there. But otherwise, I, I was not picking on truck owners. There's all kinds of examples of things that we just do because we think we need to do. And we don't actually need to do that thing. And we could get by with less, or we could get by by doing things differently. Today, we're going to look at slowing 
And you might not be thinking of slowing as a spiritual discipline, but keep in mind, spiritual disciplines are those things that help us to make room for God in our lives. And slowing is one of those. And so we'll talk about that as a key discipline of following Jesus, that one of the things I know about dust is that for it to settle on something, that thing has to be moving pretty slowly, maybe even holding still. I remember when I worked a summer job in the Black Hills in early June, there would be pine pollen everywhere. It was miserable if you were allergic to pine pollen because you could literally get enough pine pollen to settle on your car that you had to run the windshield wipers just to see. And yet, if I took off, all the pine pollen would blow off my car once I got up to about 50 or 60 miles an hour. You have to move at a certain pace for the dust of the rabbi to settle on you and to stick with you. We need to stop moving long enough to get it, and we need to move slowly enough to keep it. And so we're going to look at a passage from the Psalms and a teaching from the New Testament today as we consider the spiritual discipline of slowing. Now, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 46. Maybe you're like, well, didn't we already start in Psalm 46? Yeah, the passage we read uh, in worship was from Psalm 46. And one of the classic verses on slowing our lives down happens to be in Psalm 46. It's going to be on the screen behind me. We're only going to be there for a few minutes, and then we'll move into a New Testament teaching. Uh, but this verse talks about stillness. Verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Those two lines are quoting God, and then the response from the people is, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The same as verse 7. This psalm is interesting. It's sort of repetitive. It establishes in the first seven verses that a mighty fortress is our God, that God is a fortress. He's a refuge. He's a place of strength, a place of refuge a mighty fortress for us. And I don't know a ton about fortresses. I'm not a military uh, historian or anything like that, but I know common sense-wise that for a fortress to work, you have to be close to it. <laughs> that the protection comes from inside the fortress. And that if you are a thousand miles from your fortress, then you're too far from your fortress. But if we will stop and exist within our fortress, if we will be still and know that He is God, that He is a mighty fortress around us, an ever-present help in time of need. If we leave it behind, we do so at our peril. We find ourselves exposed and unprotected. And so that is why the psalmists say, be still and know. And we're told that's how He's exalted. When we are still and know that He is God, He says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth, earth, not just through our activity, but through our stillness with God. That exalts Him. It exalts Him in our lives. It exalts Him in the lives of the people around us when we stop long enough to be still and know deeply that He is God. And yes, we go and make disciples, but we go in step with Him. And I love how verse 11 ends this psalm by saying, The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So when we go, we go in step with Him, and we find that He is with us. We find that our God is a portable God. Our fortress is a portable fortress. When we move in step with him, he goes with us. And we've seen this from the very beginning in the Old Testament. When he led them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he went with them. 
as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He gave them elaborate instructions so that there could be a tent, a tabernacle that they could take with them so that their God would be a mighty fortress for them all the time. And this is good news for us who are in the new covenant and the Holy Spirit indwells with us. God is with us and we are to move with Him. Paul says, if we are led by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Not dragging the Spirit along on our own agenda, but saying, God, where are you moving? What are you asking me to do? And how do I stay in step with you? And that leads us to the New Testament where uh, we're going to look at a passage um, from Second Peter. But before we do, I'm reminded that when we do drift, when we do leave, when we do go off on our own, when we take the detours, our fortress is always open for us to come back. And I love Zechariah chapter 9, verse 12, one of my favorite passages or verses in the Old Testament. It says, return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. You know, the world out there likes to enslave us to all kinds of things, addictions and attractions and appetites. And there's something very attractive to me about being a prisoner of hope, a 24-7, 365, forever prisoner of hope, that hope is what holds my heart captive, not these other things. And so when we do drift away, we're to return to him, stay with him, to be still and know him. Now let's look at 2 Peter chapter 3. And uh, before we get there, I just got to remind you, this is Peter that we're talking about. He was not known for patience. He was not known for slowness. He was not known for steadiness or even thoughtfulness. This is ready, fire, aim Peter. This is the guy that spoke first and thought later. This is the guy that got himself into trouble more often than not. Some of you can resonate with Peter. You're like, oh yeah, Peter's my guy. I'm right there with Peter some of the time. But Peter says this, and that's what I think adds a second layer to it. In verse 8 and 9, he says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so Peter Later in life, I imagine, after waiting on the Lord many times, after understanding this deeply and discovering the reality of divine time, that God's not slow. He's just patient. He says to this church that he's writing or to the church that he's writing to, do not forget. Don't start rushing around in your own strength. Remember this. That divine time is not like our time. Divine time is not like our linear expression of time. You see, we are born, we have a starting point, and then we live, and we're told in Scripture that we'll live forever, that we are eternal beings. That's why the gospel matters so much. That's why having a relationship with Jesus Christ matters so much, because we will spend eternity in one of two places. But we have a start point, and then we live forever, and we move through time in a linear fashion here on earth. God doesn't. This is hard for us to wrap our minds around, but God stands back from this linear expression of time, and he is in all places at all times. He's omnipresent. He's a thousand years in the future and a million years in the past and a million years in the future all at once. And so it's hard for us to understand that in our linear experience of time, but we can trust him in that linear experience of time. And that's what Peter's saying. Don't forget this. Time is not linear for God. He's not slow. 
He's just patient. He says that in verse 9. He's not slow in keeping his promise. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is a good thing. It's a good thing that he's not slow, that he is patient. In fact, Habakkuk 2, 3 The prophet Habakkuk says, For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. God's not slow. He's patient. It's a good thing that he's patient. It enables us to come to repentance. It enables people that you know, potentially, to come to repentance. And it makes me wonder, is it possible that the more we slow ourselves down, the more patient we could become? That we might learn to trust Him and His timing more. Now, it seems like it would be the other way around, that the more we slow ourselves down, the less patient we would become, the more impatient we would become. But it's not. And we should remember that patience is a fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And it strikes me that the other eight work so much better when we're being patient, when we've slowed down a little bit, that love doesn't work very well on a, on a quick timeline, that gentleness and self-control, these things take time to develop, and they are expressed often through the giving of time. And we see that patience is a characteristic of God. And so you might be wondering, what does the spiritual discipline of patience even look like, or slowing even look like? What is the spiritual discipline of slowing, and what does it look like? Basically, it involves slowing down your mind, slowing down your body, slowing down your life. You could contrast the spiritual discipline of slowing with the hustle and bustle of whatever it is, daily life or the holidays or this season. It's always a season, right? We're just busy right now. And then after that, things will slow down. But they don't slow down on their own, do they? We have to slow them down. That inertia doesn't really work on the speed of life. That that it just continues and it keeps ramping up. In fact, some sociologists have coined the phrase hyper-living to talk about how a lot of people experience life. They just skim across the top. They never slow down and go deep with anything or anyone. They just move from the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. And we're invited by our Savior to slow down. John Ortberg speaks about this discipline of slowing as cultivating patience by deliberately choosing to place ourselves in positions where we will simply have to wait. How many of you like to wait? One or two. Yeah, we don't want to wait. And you're telling me I'm supposed to deliberately put myself in a position where I'm supposed to wait? This just, I was like, no, I'm not doing it. This is crazy. And then I was like, okay, I'll do one. I'll do one thing to slow down. Because Ortberg also adds to that idea that to choose to live an unhurried life in our day is somewhat like taking a vow of poverty in earlier centuries. It's scary. It's an act of faith. How many of you have heard the phrase, time is money? How many of you believe the phrase, time is money? And so if you're telling me to slow down and to wait and to waste time, that feels like really bad stewardship. So don't do this as an end in of itself. Do this intentionally to make room for God to move in your life, 
to have a little extra time to listen to him. It's ironic to consider that in James 1.19, we are commanded to be slow to anger, slow to speak, and quick to listen. Think about that. We're to be slow to anger. We're actually commanded in Scripture to be slow, to be slow to anger, which is a key characteristic of God. Several times throughout the Old Testament, the psalmist or the people say, or God reveals himself to his people saying, I am slow to anger and abounding in love. We're to be slow to anger too. We're to be like God in that regard. We're also to be slow to speak. Slow to speak. Proverbs talks about this a number of different times, that we would be slow to speak. And that's contrasted by being quick to listen, especially to God. Being quick to listen to God, being in a hurry to listen to God will take time. It takes time to listen to God because He's not in a hurry. He wants us to sit with Him. He wants us to experience His peace and His presence. He wants it to cultivate patience in our lives. And so you could say that a hurried prayer life sounds something like this. Listen, Lord, your servant is speaking. A little play on words, a reversal from Samuel's famous response to God when he called to him three times in the night of the temp- in the temple at night. His response was, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And I have time and I have space for you to, listen, for you to speak to me. I'm willing to listen. And so I want to give you some ideas on how to experiment with slowing. And some of these might be like, I I mentioned the first one, walk a little bit slower. I mentioned that uh, a little bit later on here, and somebody caught me between services and said, Pastor Mark, (laughs) I'm in my 80s. I don't want to walk any slower. If I get any slower, they're going to have to pound a stake next to me to make sure I'm still moving. I'm like, okay, so be selective, but have fun with this. I learned a new word reading this book uh, to gamify your life, to turn it into a game. Can I actually do this? Can I actually do some of these? Are the ones, maybe pick one that sounds just, no way, am I even going to consider that? Have a game with that and see if you can do it. The first one, I'm going to go on a, on a limb here and say that most of you drove to church. So most of you are probably going to drive home. Driving is a key area where we can choose some slowing. This was a big one for me. And when I talk about these things that we can experiment with or we can gamify, these are all things that I've done to one degree or another and experienced more peace and more patience. I thought it was going to be the other way around. I thought it was going to be irritating and aggravating. And what I found was that when you do a few of these throughout your day, you live the whole day differently. And we intentionally choose to slow down. There may be some times where i got to have a little spring in my step. Somebody caught me on the way to the bathroom and said, you're walking too fast, Pastor. I said, well, you know where I'm going, and I don't have a lot of time to waste. But the first one, driving, just drive the speed limit. See if you can. This got an audible laugh in the first voice, first service. Some people just thought, that's hilarious. People actually drive the speed limit. Don't be obnoxious and go five under because now you're just being a nuisance. But drive the speed limit. Set the cruise if you have to. Pick a lane, even the slow lane sometimes, and stay in it. I make a left turn onto 57th on my way home, and I don't need to turn again until I get to the street that I turn left on. So I don't switch lanes anymore. I used to do this all the way across town, whichever one was the shortest. I'd dive into that one. We've got this left turn with no light on the way across town where people get stopped and backed up because there's traffic coming the other way. And I used to always duck over into the right lane and pass them, and ooh, saved a minute. Now I just stop, and I go a little slower, and it's okay. Speaking of stopping, 
There's these red octagonal shaped signs that literally say the word stop. Is there anybody like me that's been cruising through those for decades? This has been one of the hardest things for me. I, I stop accelerating, right? And then I stop braking long before an actual full stop. And I'm really working on coming up to an intersection with nobody but one of those little red signs and actually stopping all the way. And yet, this is changing the way I live my life. Uh, texting, like, I shouldn't have to say anything about texting, but like, don't multitask while you're driving. Sending, you know, three or four or 5,000 pounds down the road at 40, 50, 60 miles an hour is enough. Focus on that. Slow down. Next one is technology. Might step on a few toes here, but technology, uh, billions and maybe even trillions at this point of dollars have been spent to make technology as addictive as possible. Every game, every phone, every app, every single thing is designed to capture as much of your attention as possible because the more attention they have, the more ads they can sell. And so I would strongly encourage you, this is one of the ones that has borne the most fruit in my life. I turned my smartphone into a dumb phone. I grayed out the screen. I took all my notifications off. I buried my favorite time-wasting apps. I made it annoying to be on my phone. It's irritating to me. It's gray. I hate that. I can't find the things that I want. I hate that. And that's a good thing. And I bet you my phone screen time has cut in half since I made those shifts. So that's one thing you can do. You can put it to bed early and make it sleep in. Like, if you go to bed at 10, put your phone to bed at 8 and enjoy a couple hours without it. And don't doom scroll on Facebook for hours before bed. Don't touch it in the morning for at least an hour. Like all kinds of neuropsychology and neurobiology is pointing to what that light is doing to us, what that constant tapping and the dopamine that it releases is doing to us, and none of it's good. Schedule your email, schedule your social media, or get off of it altogether. Schedule your TV. Don't just... Do it because you don't have anything else to do. Schedule it. And if you don't like how much time you're scheduling, then find other things to do. But take some intentionality into this and create empty space in your calendar to do other things and be intentional with those. That brings us to our daily life. You could arrive early for something and then just, like, stay off your phone. You know, people used to get to a doctor's office or something, and they would make small talk with the other people. We don't do that anymore, do we? We all stare at our phones and we do this or we check or we catch up on something and, and we feel isolated as a result because we never just have small talk with other people. But you could arrive early and not have some distraction. That would be something to consider. Maybe you do walk a little bit slower. You choose a long line in the grocery store. I've yet to do this. I, I, it's still a theory for me. <laughs> I find the smallest, the shortest line, or, or maybe if it is a longer line, it's because there isn't much stuff in those baskets, and so I think it's going to move faster. But I'm, I'm always angling for the shorter line. You could single task instead of multitasking, which psychology tells us is a myth. We're just moving between tasks very quickly, but we're not truly multitasking, and so generally we do all of them poorly. You could cook. Some of you, this is a novel idea. What is, what is cooking? It's where you shop from the perimeter and you put the ingredients together yourself instead of going up and down the aisles, finding the one that's already packaged for you. You could even experiment, like on the Sabbath, unplug your microwave for a Sabbath. I got this idea this week. I haven't done it yet. But I'm like, what if when I wanted to heat something up, I had to put it on the stove? Might give me some time to wait. Might give me an opportunity to thank God for that food at a little less than I normally do, a little more than I normally do. Hand wash the dishes. 
Somebody shared something with me about hand-washing the dishes occasionally and how it reminded them of their grandmother and how it was like this spiritual experience to just hand-wash the dishes. What if you did that every now and then? And it slowed you down, but you enjoyed it. And it brought things and experiences to mind. Take a longer vacation if you can. This is something we discovered recently. We used to always just take a one-week vacation. And the way that a one-week vacation works, even if you get both weekends on, on either side of it, you've got nine days. And if you're anything like me, it takes you three or four just to wind down and to stop doing. And so you're four days in, and about two or three days from the end of that vacation, I start thinking about all that's waiting for me and the things that I have to do and what's on my to-do list, and I've got like this two or three-day window in the middle of that. But if you take a two full weeks at a time, if you can figure out a way to do this without calling in sick, <laughs> it's amazing when you can have seven or eight days in a row where you're not working, you're not producing, you're just on vacation. This also applies to spiritual disciplines. That these aren't microwaved things that we've talked about these spiritual disciplines like silence and solitude. That's what the SNS is. Regular silence and solitude, plan it, slow down, stop. Don't, don't microwave the silence and solitude, give it some time. Take a Sabbath or, or work your way up to a Sabbath. Maybe you think there's no possible way. We'll start with a morning, start with an afternoon, build into that. Do what you can until you can do what you couldn't. Journal, take the time to write things down, take the time to read what you wrote and remember, do a monthly review, an annual review and remember what was going on in that season of life and how God was present with you, an ever-present help in time of trouble. Experiment with listening prayer or breath praying. This is something I've done when I get anxious or when I start to feel overwhelmed. I, bre I breath pray through the, whole, the fruit of the Spirit. And so I say, Holy Spirit, fill my life with your love on the way in, nice and slow. On the way out, I say, let your love flow through me to others. And then I do that with joy and with peace, and with patience. And it slows me down and it reconnects me to him. Seek to build simplicity into your schedule. Last week we talked about leading a, a happy, cheerful revolt against the spirit of materialism. Today I want to encourage you to lead a happy, cheerful revolt against the spirit of faster is better. Because we live in a world that is just turbocharging everything. And yet I think sometimes we could be invited into a cheerful, happy revolt against the spirit of the world around us that says faster is better, because sometimes it just isn't. It certainly isn't in relationships and not in our relationship with God. So I want to encourage you to maybe schedule a breakup with busy, especially if you're really busy all the time. Like break up with that. Break up with busy. Break up with hurry. I heard a testimony and somebody said, I was married to busy. And it was spiritual adultery. Because I'm called to be the bride of Christ. And if I'm married to busy, I can't be faithful to him. And so it will cause some changes. Some of this might feel uncomfortable. It might hurt at first. Pruning hurts. But it adds to fruitful obedience in our lives. When we choose to abide with Christ, he might say, this, this thing... It might look good from the outside, but it's not bearing any fruit in your life. It needs to go. And so there's some pruning that takes place, and that hurts at first. And yet, it enables us to bear much fruit 
fruit that will remain. And so what's the bottom line today? The bottom line is that the pace of grace leads to a stiller place. The pace of grace leads to a stiller place, a place where we can be still. That if we're walking with Jesus, that's going to involve stopping with Jesus sometimes. Getting away with him to a quiet place by ourselves. And if we choose to make room for him in some of these key areas, in some of these key ways, we might find that we are returning to our fortress as prisoners of hope. We might be reminded of what we actually hope in. We might find him to be a refuge and a place of strength in our lives. So how can you slow your life down? How can you cultivate patience and trust in the midst of your life? Experiment. Play a game. Enjoy it. Have fun. Say, could I actually do this? What would it look like? And be attentive to what God reveals to you. And give him some space for the dust of your Rabbi Jesus to settle on you and to settle over you and to remain on you. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you love us so much, that you desire that we would move through life at the pace of your grace. Help us to believe that we're enough even when we're slowing down, even when we're not over-functioning. Help us to rest in you. Help us to be still and know that you are God, to know it deeply, and to allow you to be exalted in our lives as we move at the pace of grace, as we slow down and make room for you to speak to us. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.